Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm David Thornton. This week, Phil Curry, Chief Political Correspondent at the Australian Financial Review, runs me through the week's political news. Diana Mussina, Senior Economist of the Multi-Asset Group at AMP Capital, talks me through what's been going on market-wise. Callum Pickering, APAC Economist at Indeed.com, goes through the latest economic data. And Justin Rampono, Director of the Currency Shop, tells me how he's disrupting the foreign exchange scene. Joining me now is Phil Curry, Chief Political Correspondent at the Australian Financial Review. So, Phil, the news continues to centre on Labor's uh, tax plan. Do you think Shorten will stay the course or uh, will he dilute it with uh, exemptions for pensioners, low-income earners and the like? I think they'll definitely dilute it. Um, and he said that he said as much pretty much from day one that, you know, watch this space, there's more to come for pensioners. The, the intent of the, um, the measure, if you like, is to go after people on higher incomes and um but there's you know many thousands of people on lower incomes who lose a little bit or a lot so i think the most likely uh exemption or, or course of action they'll take will be to bring in some sort of threshold you know you can receive probably one i, I hear they're thinking higher you know one two or three thousand dollars a year in um you know in in in, in a credit and a franking credit payment uh, that would be exempt, so you'd have to earn higher than that before you're not eligible for it. And they're, they're t- touting around some modelling from the Industry Super Association, which seems to suggest you know a thousand dollar exemption, for example, would only not cost very much out of the annual savings. So um, it'd be pretty easy to do. Is this policy going to cost them the election, or has the whole thing been overstated? You know, it seemed like an in, an incredibly stupid thing for Sean to do, but then uh, Labor won the Batman by-election easily. That's right. I mean, I think it's too early to tell, and, and even Labor says it's too early to tell. It'll depend when people actually work out whether they're affected or not. I mean, retirees, especially self-funded retirees, aren't traditionally a, a Labor voting demographic. You know, they, they tend to be more the coalition voters, um, especially the ones who are, who are on higher incomes. So I guess Labor's calculated some element of you know, gamble there. And don't forget, you know, the, 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 this gives them, if they get this through, a, a massive war chair so they can sort of, you know, the net effect is buy votes elsewhere, if you like, with income tax cuts that will probably gazump whatever the government's going to announce in the budget for low and middle income earners. Um, you know, if they exempt low income pensioners, um, you know, that, 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 that may, you know, mitigate some of the uh, the backlash. So you know, short answer, too early to tell, long answer, you know, <laughs> what I just said, it, 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 it's too many variables. But um, the, the bottom line is, I think, um, retirees are just, just a little bit sick of it because, you know, what, what one of the problems is, I guess, there was so much heat on retirees and the Howard Costello years, and as successive governments undo a lot of this largesse, they keep, you know, there's a big pot of money there, and this is the third raid, if you like, on retirees in the last few years. You know, the coalition trimmed pensions you know, of, of self-funded retirees. They changed the asset test. Uh, then they went after the, you know, the contentious superannuation measures in the budget and, and now Labor's coming back for a third dip. So I just think the whole sector is a little bit hypersensitive at the moment and, you know, it's not probably good politics to keep going there. So is this uh, is this part of some bigger plan of Shorten's to cut his losses and go all in with the younger voters? No, it's. I don't think so. It, it, it's just, you know, you've got to appeal to all demographics. It is interesting that I, I think the day after Shorten announced his policy, when, when it was going gangbusters, 
um, Turnbull did three interviews with FM radio stations and didn't get a single question on it. So it is an issue that doesn't really, you know, fuss younger voters at all. But you've got you've got to appeal to all demographics. You can't just sort of, you know, some people are more popular with age groups than others, but at the end of the day, everyone votes and you've got to, you know, sort of not try and exclude one to the other. So, um, no, I think, you know, as Labor keeps saying, we're the party of pensioners and so forth, and we opposed the cuts two years ago that when Scott Morrison did a deal with the Greens and when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. So um, I think we just have to wait and see what, you know, the final shape of this policy before we can really take a view whether it's anti-pensioner or not. Moving to the other side of politics, Turnbull has, uh, I think, three news polls uh, to get to the magic 30. Uh, how do you see Who the leadership? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you see it all playing out? Is is he going to be skewered by his own uh, news poll test? Look, I don't think so because, uh, A, there's absolutely no... No one's talking anything about leadership at the moment. There's no... There's no even if they were, there's no candidate. I mean, who's, who, who, who in the coalition would lift their vote if you had a change today? I would say no one. Um, at best, Julie Bishop might, you know, hold station, but everyone else would probably go backwards. Um, so it will be a lot of fun and a lot of yelling and screaming on the day. I'm sure Tony Abbott will make his views heard. But you know, as we've heard, uh, the Prime Minister already rehearsing some of the arguments. Uh, he's been saying, um, you know, when I knocked off Abbott in 2015, I, yeah, he cited 30 negative news polls, but he also cited a few other things. One was the need to restore business confidence, consumer confidence, get the economy growing, and he's saying he's done all of those. So he's done three out of the four, so you can't just judge him on the news poll test alone. But there'll be some spin and some, uh, you know, elbows out from Abbott and co, but... I think he'll survive that. I think his bigger problem, if you like, in the leadership sense is towards the end of this year, if he lets the election go into next year and they're still behind, it could get fairly febrile inside the coalition around November, December. Once people start facing the reality of actually losing their seats, then um, that's why I think he'll probably, you know, on balance, still go to an election this year. But um, for now, he'll get through the news poll, the news poll thing. Uh, moving on now to the corporate tax cuts. Hanson's, Hanson seems to be on board, uh, but Darren Hinch is uh, a holdout. Uh, so now I think with Hanson on board, the government needs uh, another two votes. Is that right? Do you That's think right. That, are they going to get yes. there? I do. I, I just uh, This thing has a, has a real sort of momentum about it. I mean, if Darren Hinch wasn't... What, what's going on is as of Thursday morning, Hanson was, after the business leaders sort of sent an open letter saying they'd invest the proceeds and so forth, you know, Hanson pretty much all but said she's happy. Uh, as you said, that gives them the seven votes. They need nine. Hinch is negotiating. If Hinch wasn't interested, he wouldn't be talking. He'd do what the next Xenophon senators were saying, saying, no, we're opposed, go away. So he wants to do a deal. I think he's positioning himself as the new Xenophon, you know, just drive everyone mad and just, you know, be the last guy to sign up and, and hold out for some sort of thing so you can, you know, wave around some sort of victory to your supporters. You know, ask for something that's got nothing to do with the issue at stake, just a bit of horse trading. Um, so he's in the middle of all that. Um, and if they, if they get him on board, they need one more, and it all comes down to a bloke called Tim Storer who only got sworn in on Monday. He's an independent from South Australia. He replaced... Uh, the next Xenophon team, Sky Kokoski more but he quit the Xenophon team, so he's by himself. And he's 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 the hardest to pick because he hadn't said anything so far. But he's he only been here a few days, and as I said elsewhere, he's still working out where the toilets are. You know, he's got to make a sixty-five billion dollar decision. Um, but I would 
be very surprised if you know they had eight. Uh, they had eight, and this bloke said no because it's a big thing to you know it's a government's mandate, and they'll be putting all sorts of pressure on him. I mean, Matthias Cormann will just camp out his doorstep every day between now and the, the end of the world, um, and he can be very persu- persuasive. Matthias, he's a he's a, a superb negotiator, and and if they do get this across, it will be almost exclusively due, due to him. So um, let's wait and see. But um, I, I think on balance, I think they'll get there. It'll just cost them a bit. And finally, Phil, uh, how much trouble is the Victorian Labor Party in amid the the revelations they reallocated almost four hundred thousand mm. uh, from uh, electorate offices to campaign efforts in uh, twenty fourteen? Well, it's not a good look, especially in an election year. He goes to the polls, Daniel Andrews, in November. Given the shortness of the news cycle, will probably be forgotten by then. But the trouble with these things, Dave, is it just feeds into that whole antipathy people have towards politicians, which has been very pronounced over the last few years. They just think they're all rotters and swine, you know, who just, you know, got their hands in the till and, you know, at every opportunity gouged the taxpayer and these sorts of things, you know, whether warranted or not, just fuel that perception. And they tend to do more damage generally to politics than a specific party. You know, the, the, the prime example was Bromland Bishop's helicopter ride. I mean, that the reaction to that was completely out of proportion to the crime, but it, it just it just burst this bubble that had been growing, you know, of resentment. And it just became the sort of lightning rod for that. And they, 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 and this similar, I imagine everyone's, the reaction is, oh, they're all crooks, they're all in it, they're all feathering their nest. But um, I assume, you know, the Liberals will make something of it. But um, Andrews has responded to it fairly swiftly, paid the money back, will try and shut it down. And it's only March, the election's in November, I'm sure, you know, there'll be other stuff by then. But, you know, if the Labor Party, you'd rather it didn't happen than it did. Joining me now is Diana Musena, Senior Economist at the Multi-Asset Group at AMP Capital. So Diana, the big news out of America this morning uh, is an increase uh, of the federal funds rate uh, announced by Jeremy uh, Jerome Powell. How have markets reacted? Yep. Well, it's been, of a, it's been a bit of a strange reaction initially when we saw the outcome from the Fed, uh, the actual increase in the Fed funds rate from 1.25 to 1.75 wasn't unexpected, and the market U.S. U.S. equities actually rallied. Um, U.S. bond yields moved up to above 2.9 percent on the 10-year, and the U.S. dollar sparked a bit higher. But all of that was reversed during the Fed's testimony uh, or their uh, their their press conference. So the U.S. market ended up closing 0.2 percent, and the U.S. dollar had a pretty significant fall lower. So it was a bit of a strange reaction, and it probably comes down to the fact that markets think that uh, the U.S. Fed is more dovish than what they were expecting. So Powell's flagged uh, three rate rises uh, for this year. Um, How do you view his monetary uh, policy compared to Yellen's? Is it going to be more aggressive? Well, I think it will really be more of the same and that continuity is really what we thought we'd see with Powell uh, because he had been a member a member of the F, F, of the FOMC for such a long time with Yellen. I suppose that the Fed has to trade quite carefully in trying to not make markets too excited that they're going to hike too aggressively and I think that they've done a good job of that equity markets tend to get spooked when 
because they see that a central bank is going to hike too aggressively. And that isn't happening for the US yet. If we did see some indication from the Federal Reserve that they were going to move from three to four hikes this year, then I think that the market probably would have taken that as a much more hawkish sign and the currency would have rallied. But we're not getting that indication yet. However, based on the Fed's own forecast, they revised up their growth numbers a little bit and they seem to be quite comfortable in potentially overshooting the inflation target. That's definitely what they've said uh, in their commentary. I think that we may actually get four hikes this year. So the market pricing for the Fed funds rate needs to move higher over the next few months and it probably will move higher. Moving on now to the steel and aluminium aluminium, uh, tariffs. Uh, announced sure. by by Trump, uh, have the mar- have the markets completely priced that in now? I think that the the weakness in equities over over the past few weeks definitely reflect some uncertainty as to what's happening with trade. The steel and aluminium tariffs are actually quite small in the big scheme of things uh, in terms of the countries that the US is targeting because they've made some exemptions for countries, uh, but also because the actual impact the US economy will be small. But what the market is pricing in is a potential for more announcements from the Republican Party and the Trump administration as to what other tariffs they're going to impose. And what the market is really worried about is potentially much bigger tariffs that are specifically imposed on the Chinese economy. That would create a much bigger impact on world trade on the US economy and on the Chinese economy, and we could see retaliation by the Chinese economy and perhaps even other um, countries as well if the US was to impose tariffs on them. So that market pricing uh, is partly reflected, I think, for tariffs, but if, if we do get more announcements, then there's definitely more downside to go for equity, for equity markets. So do you anticipate a, a trade war? Always a difficult question to answer. We don't anticipate uh, that there will be a full-blown trade war because that would completely wipe out any benefits that the Trump administration has wanted to put in place with the very large tax cuts that they've done, the increase to the spending caps that were approved in um, the legislation that was passed in February around the budget. If the trade war was to happen, that would completely eliminate all those gains. So... It would, it would just seem like bad economic policy, really. But uh, you can't rule out more tariffs that are specifically targeted towards countries. And China is obviously one that has been most spoken about in the press that's coming out from the, from the Republicans. So I guess that we have to say that that's really a big risk. However, um, Trump did toned down on the initial tariffs for steel and aluminium after it was announced. So we may actually see that happening as well, even though he's talking about potentially imposing $60 billion worth of tariffs on, uh, sorry, imposing tariffs on $60 billion worth of Chinese goods, it might actually end up being a lot lower than that. And it may just be a bargaining tactic that he's trying to use with Xi Jinping. And just finally, how did uh, markets here at home uh, respond to the rate increase? Uh, I, have, oh, I haven't actually looked at how the, how the markets opened, but the um, US futures, which, which were trading lower in the morning, 
so it's not a great sign for the Aussie market for today's session. Uh, the increase in the Australian dollar as well after a few days or a few weeks of uh, becoming weaker is probably also not so great for our equity market performance. So in the next few weeks, and our medium-term view overall and anti-capital is still that Australian equities will underperform global equities. And that's mainly just because earnings growth here is likely to be lower than where it is overseas. But the high currency in Australia does really put and dampening effect on equity market performance. And that's similar to countries like Europe and Japan as well that have recently had appreciating currencies that have been putting downward pressure on the, on the markets there. So it's probably not such good news for equity, for equity market performance here. Joining me now is Callum Pickering, APAC economist at Indeed.com. So Callum, uh, the February jobs report was just released. What did we learn? Uh, well, it was another strong month for the Australian labour market. Employment was up 17,500 um, people. Uh, full-time employment rebounded. Uh, participation in the labour force is now at its highest level on record, which is a really um, good development. So overall, it's sort of a continuation of what we've seen over the past 12 months. That is that the labour market in Australia is improving um, and that there is a number of bright spots going forward. How far will the uh, the unemployment rate have to fall before we see uh, wage pressures increase? Uh, well, right now it's at around 5.5%. Um, I anticipate that it would need to get down to around 5% before we really begin to see a material pickup in wages. We, we might see it increase by, say, uh, a quarter of a percentage point before we got down to 5%, but any meaningful increase in wages up to over 3%, the sort of levels that we um, were once accustomed to, won't occur until the unemployment rate gets down to around 5% or lower. Uh, so how did the figures compare between the major cities and the states? Uh, well, New South Wales continues to have the strongest labour market in Australia. Their unemployment rate is um, a little bit below 5%. Um, most of the other states continue to be in the high fives to the low um, 6% range. So there's quite a divergence between New South Wales and the rest of the country in in that regard. Um, we continue to see strong growth um, in Sydney and to Melbourne to a lesser extent, um, but there continues to be some issues with the other capital cities and states. Um, zeroing in now on the, the nuts and bolts, uh, how many hours uh, are Australians working? Uh, well, just recently we've seen a, a little bit of an easing in growth in, in total hours worked, which is a, a concerning development. Um, hours worked across Australia has increased by 2.7% over the past year, which is tracking a little bit um, slower than total employment growth of 3.3%. Um, so this is an issue that um, we're keeping a, a close eye on because while it's important that a lot of people are working, it's also very important that they're you know, working a lot of hours as well. So it suggests that there are still a lot of Australians out there who perhaps aren't working as many hours as they would like to. Um, and, and those people would certainly be looking for um, more opportunity going forward. Joining me now is Justin Romperno, Director of the Currency Shop. Justin, when was the Currency Shop launched and what exactly does it offer? Okay, so the, the Currency Shop was launched about three and a half years ago. What it offers is uh, an opportunity for people to compare exchange rates similar to, say, if you used iSelect to compare health insurance or if you used um, SkyScanner 
to compare uh, airfares. We, uh, we we allow people to compare exchange rates and fees, predominantly if you if you're sending money overseas or, or just buying some cash before a holiday. Uh, who are the major players in in the space? Who are you comparing a uh uh, between rates between. Okay, so on the cash side, so think you know buying some some money before you head off to Bali or New Zealand. It's uh, the big banks, along with guys like uh, Travelex, who I'm sure you know, and Travel Money Oz, who are also a large player in the space. On the international money transfer side, again we compare the big banks. Uh, we also compare um, the the next. Um, level of large money transfer companies, so the likes of OFX, who are based in Australia, TransferWise, WorldFirst, XE, uh, money transfers, ToroFX, those kind of companies. Those, those companies, are they uh, market makers themselves or do they take uh, their rates from uh, the bigger banks? No, no. So, so those players all, all operate within the interbank wholesale market. So the they basically, they're cost of, if you will, cost of goods sold is the same as the banks. So when you look at um, XE.com or Google or Yahoo and you see the wholesale interbank rate, that's what everybody's buying it at roughly. Those are, it seems the space has been dominated uh, for the longest uh, time by the big banks. Was there a regulatory mm-hmm. reason for that and what's changed? Um, I think in part it was, yeah. So um, in order to establish and, and, and run a money transfer company, there are pretty big barriers to entry, and, and for good reason. You, you, it's an incredibly highly regulated industry, and, and again, for good reason. Um, so just to set up a money transfer company requires a fair bit of um, capital, um, and there, there it is really um, regulation-heavy. So it means that, you know, Every mum and dad can't set up a money transfer business. Um, but you've still seen really good players in the market like OFX. I mean, that was born in Sydney in the, in the 90s and, and, and guys like TransferWise um, challenge the banks and, and take a fair bit of market share away from them. Uh, I see the tra- on, the, on your website the transaction time uh, is, can be greatly reduced uh, versus uh, going through the banks. Uh, what, what kind of friction do you guys avoid that uh, the banks might have to deal with? So, um, no, no, the, in terms of transactions um, time, banks versus a non-bank like TransferWise or, or OFX or TorFX, the bank, using a bank is still, well, it's probably not going to be the cheapest way, it's still quicker. And that's because, um, say, you bank with ANZ and you use ANZ, they've got your bank details, they can take the money out of your account straight away and send that money overseas. If you're using someone like... Uh, Transwise, OFX, World First, you need to actually pay the money to that provider before they send it overseas, which means that you, you're throwing in an extra 24 hours um, transfer time. Now, that's going to be cut down in the coming year with the NPP. Um, once we go, once most Australians go onto that platform, it's going to cut it from 24 hours to a matter of seconds. Um, the transfer times from Australia to overseas is also coming down every year. Um, I remember it used to take yeah, two to three business days to get money to London. Now at most it should take about 24 hours, um, which is, in, in my opinion, still pretty slow. You can, you, can, you can fly to London a lot quicker than you can send money there. <laughs> Absolutely. What are 
Justin, what kind of uh, demand have you seen for, for your service? Um, look, in the last three and a half years, we, we've seen um, really, really consistent, strong growth. And so we, um, we've seen a demand, not just for comparison in, in money transfers, but thanks to the likes of iSelect, Finder, a lot of other good comparison sites, I think Australians are getting a bit more used to comparing their financial products, whereas five, ten years ago, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think to do that. Um, so the demand for the comparison itself is increasing, which we love. Um, and, and we also like the fact that it's um, increasing competition um, as a result. Uh, where's Australia uh, situated compared to overseas? Are these uh, market comparison services well-established overseas? Are we, are we lagging behind or are we ahead of the pack? Um, no, I think, I think we're in the leading pack. Uh, so I, I think OFX is, is placed really well against uh, its, its peers. Um, there are a lot of other good um, startups and, and mid-sized companies in Australia like Airwallex. Um, there's, a, there's a great company out of New Zealand called Ladderpay that are all um, establishing themselves as, as leaders in the industry. So no, I, I don't think we're, um, we're lagging at all. Happy birthday to the legendary Sir Elton John, who turned 71 on Sunday. He is one of his best. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. That's it for Talking Finance. I'm David Thornton. Have a great week.